your service and your and your and your offering, you know, has to be good, else you you're not going to be in business. So, what's more than that? And what's more than that is the community that you build, the conviviality that you show within service, and the connectivity of of your clients um, with each other and with your staff. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to somebody who feels, is soaked in, in, is imbued with the absolute spirit, art and heart of hospitality. His name is Gerald Diffie. He is a co-owner with Mario Dieno of Gerald's Bar in Melbourne and also in San Sebastian. Re- uh, recently, Gerald also became a published author. His book, Beggar's Belief, Stories from Gerald's Bar, was published recently by Melbourne Books and co-written with the incomparable Max Allen. Gerald, it is an absolute thrill to have you on Dirty Linen today. Welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, I Rather than putting you on the spot, I thought I'd put myself on the spot and just read a little bit from your book, if that's okay with you. Of course. So your book is one of those that I took away with me camping, which is where I've been for the past couple of weeks. And I confess I haven't read it all the way through yet because because it is I don't want it to finish. And it is such a lovely book to pick up and put down. It's just got these beautiful episodes. It's not chronological. It just t- touches on all kinds of beautiful aspects of hospitality. And the page that I wanted to read out for for the readers is called Mandarin. The Grand Hotel, Mildura. Stefano De Pieri's eponymous restaurant. Fine dining. Very fine in a town whose other restaurants don't have wine lists and are run by a clown. Stefano and I are heading into work and we're passing an orchard laden with fully ripe mandarins. It's a warm day and the perfume is intoxicating. I suggest we do a display of fruit at the entrance to the restaurant so we pull over and pick some of the mandarins. The display works a treat. The whole dining room is infused with scent, like Seville in summer. The service starts and after a few courses, Steph says to me, could we be so cheeky and serve the mandarins for dessert? I don't need asking twice. Come the time, we place an unpeeled mandarin on a little white plate with a little silver knife in front of each guest. When the mandarins are peeled and consumed, the room explodes with fragrance. They are the very best mandarins anyone has ever eaten. Even after more traditional desserts and fine cheese and coffee and liqueurs, the guests are still talking about the wonderful fruit and how clever we are and what a marvellous chef Stefano is. I half expect someone to ask how he did it. And I would have to say that, despite Stefano not being a tall man, he was tall enough to pick a mandarin off a tree. The trick was to do it 20 minutes before service. What a great story, Gerald. Well, it's easy when you're just recalling things. (laughs) I mean, to me, that says so much about what hospitality is and what it is to create an experience for people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I when I started writing, which was about 10 years ago, and I'm, I never wanted to write a cookbook. I just wanted to write a, a book that sort of uh, encapsulated more than just the cooking, um, you know, the sort of beating heart of what it what it 
what it is to be in service and, you know, how you make things special, I guess. So it's not just a mechanical making of things, whether it's food or drink. It's, it's a thought that goes behind it to make it different and special, I guess. Um, and I think that's what the, you know, a lot of the stories sort of highlight. The, uh, the attention to detail and the f- sort of philosophy behind what makes a great dining experience. Mm. I think that really comes through, yeah. And that can be in a chip shop or in a, in a, in a Michelin-star restaurant. It, you know, the same rules apply. Well, what, what do you think? I mean, you, you sort of explain the rules obliquely and, uh, and directly throughout the book, but, you know, can you distill them? What do you think, what do you think the essence is or the rules are? Uh, care, <laughs> you know, giving a toss, you know, keeping, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of what we do in hospitality is, is very sort of repetitive and mundane and, I guess, you know, you want to keep your own interest up by mixing it up and introducing new things, sourcing new products, sourcing new wines, getting things in season, you know, hitting the nail on the head. And, yeah, and I think um, these are the stories about how I think about things, I guess. Mm. And, you know, at the book launch, which was heaps of fun, uh, at Gerald's Bar in Carlton North a couple of months ago, Max Allen spoke about the process of beginning to write the book, which was you, <laughs> I think you sometimes have to say things Max says with a grain of salt. So tell me if, what, tell me what really happened. But he sort of spoke about it as, you know, that you arrived with big bags of scraps of paper and just sort of uh, put them in front of him and said, I think I've got a book. Was it something like that? I asked him if he'd have a look at my writings. Um, it was about the time when he, I was at his launch for Intoxicating, 10 Drinks That Shaped Australia. And I had done, um, uh, you know, I'd done as much writing as I felt I could. And uh, so I, I, I said to him, can you just have a look? And, uh, and of course, it's all written longhand over 10 years. Um, so there are just reams and reams of pads and pieces of paper and scraps all over the place. And, yeah, I literally gave them to him in a shopping bag and said, there you go, sort that out, which he did marvellously. <laughs> um, he really did. And I think, I mean, initially I started to write, and, of course, there's 10 years of new experiences that have happened right the way through that period. But I started really to try and demystify all the ephemera that is in the bar. I wanted to tell the backstory of, um, you know, the art and the objects and, you know, many people might just look at it and just say it's a collection of kitsch. Um, and, but it was, it's, it, it's so much more than that. I mean, uh, and I always use the example, it's like I've got an old enamel teapot that was my grandmother's on the shelf. And that, to tell the story of why that teapot is that teapot, I have to go back four generations through war and, uh, you know, and, and struggle and you start going down those rabbit holes and uh, the stories just come. Mm. Tell me about the curtains in the front window. Um, well, I've always, I was, I was come, growing up in the 60s in the UK, um, net curtains were a part of every household and, 
and they they serve a sort of timeless purpose of that you you can sort of see through them but you sort of can't and having those net curtains in the window gives a sense of intimacy if you're inside the bar um, and a sort of curiosity if you're outside of the bar and they also diffuse the light so so nicely so I mean net curtains like tablecloths reflect very incandescently on the diner's faces and makes everyone look, uh, I don't know, a, a little nicer, a little healthier, a little brighter. Um, those are the things that intrigue me. Mm. I mean, it, it, the design at Gerald's, it's so thoughtful and obviously very personal and, yeah, you start, as you, the more you talk about it, you start to get a sense of the way that you build an experience for people that come into the place for all kinds of different reasons and in all kinds of different states of mind. I mean, what do you think about the way that restaurants are often designed these days? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of a bit old-fashioned, really. I, I, I think that, I mean, Gerald's is wasn't designed, you know, I didn't sit down and design the place. It, it's designed itself over, you know, 40 years of working in the industry. And I've just taken all the little bits that I love and that I think work and, you know, added them and changed things and moved things along. And, and it's, I think that great, great dining rooms, bars, restaurants, doesn't matter what you call them, are really sort of evolutions of an individual's trade, if you like, you know, um, Nothing in nothing in the bar is there just just for the hell of it. Everything's got a story. Everything's got a memory, and that comes from travel, from dining, but also, you know, from other people's restaurants, um, you know, and also just life. I mean, just experiences. Music, music, and art are also very important to me, and they play a big role in um, in the space. So it's like, I don't know, a little time capsule. Uh, uh, I, I don't, I, don't I, I love restaurants and shiny new ones are beautiful, but I don't think they quite have the soul of something that's grown out of the, grown out of the sod, if you like. Yeah, interesting. Um, can you talk a bit about the Gerald's Bar in San Sebastian, how that came about and how you, when you do run such a personal business, how you're able to do that when you can't be there all the time? Yeah, well, um, I've been going to San Sebastian for years and I got tired of being a tourist and I just wanted to be part of, uh, be a player in that in that space. And so Mario and I um, rented a little bar, gave the, the owner a holiday for a couple of weeks and we just tried to trick it up with, you know, our style, if you like. Nothing Spanish about it, nothing Basque about it, just what we do, going to the markets, buying what's fresh, trying to make a meal out of it. And it was met as, a, you know, a minor success. A lot of interested restaurateurs became friends. And so we thought maybe we've got a potentially got a, you know, a permanent address. And we didn't really think much of it until a few days before we were leaving. And, uh, and then a friend informed us that he knew of a bar in Gross, which is the uh, surf beach side of San Sebastian, that was had been closed for some time. We just thought, well, we're just going to stick our nose in and have a look. And, of course, Mario and I walked through the front door and just stood there with our mouths open because we realised that if we were ever going to do it, we had to do it there. And 
and it grows from that. Enormously difficult to to run, um, and I spent three years going backwards and forwards all the time, uh, as did Mario, and we eventually found um, a wonderful woman, Bella, Bella Bowering, an English girl who was previously working at uh, one of the three-star Michelin restaurants, and she comes from a hoteling background in the UK, and she became our business partner, and and um, we get on so well, and she's just so good at what she does that uh, she's taken the taken the Gerald's sort of ethos and um, and run with it. So now we can just go back and enjoy it. Hopefully, <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah, one day. Certainly must be. Yeah, well, it's certainly a tricky period in world history to have a business that spans different countries. Yes, it it's not without its challenges, but um, no, I mean we couldn't do it without Bella and um, and uh, Mario um, works tirelessly here. I mean we've got through COVID so far with all our staff. Um, we're very proud of looking after our people. Um, and the customers have come back in droves, uh, as many droves as we're allowed to have, of course. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Hospitality people are very resilient. You know, you just get on with it. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's remarkable uh, and really quite frightening, the amount of resilience that's been called upon and continues to be called upon um, from people working in hospitality. It just seems like, yeah, there's always another curveball on the way. But I think one of the positives that people have drawn or, you know, perhaps hopefully at times is that people have people have a new appreciation for hospitality. Do you find that? And if so, do you think it's enduring? Look, my approach to hospitality is is, is that it's less to do with food and wine and it's, it's kind of what we've dubbed the three Cs. It's about community, conviviality and connection. And the worst thing about social distancing was people couldn't connect and come together to break bread and be convivial. Um, but what has become the positive is the community. So the communities really come together, whether it be the hospitality community or the local community that uh, patronises um, our business. And I think if you if you work along those those lines of the three Cs, your your clientele will always come back because you are part, very much part of their community and they want to connect and they want to be convivial and that's how we approach business, I think. I mean, it's, it has to be a given that the food and wine is exemplary. I mean, that's just got to be a given. It's not like, um, you know, that's that's your starting point, you know, your service and your and your and your offering you know, it has to be good, else you, you're not going to be in business. So what's more than that? And what's more than that is the community that you build, the conviviality that you show within service and the connectivity of, of your clients um, with each other and with your staff and your suppliers. I mean, having a, having a great rapport and relationship with your suppliers and being loyal and honest has really you know, pulled us through a lot. There's a lot of suppliers that, you know, did it as hard as, as we ever did, especially catering to the, uh, to the industry. And, um, you know, that, 
that community and that connection has, has, has been vital for us all to survive. And was that already there? I mean, did, you, did, you, did your relationships get deeper and stronger through this period? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, well, I think, you know, that, that, that idea of community means that uh, we all just realised, you know, who you really do realise who, you, who your allies are and who your mates are and, you know, who's rooting for you. It's really, it's really incredible that you managed to hang on to all your staff through this period, Gerald. It's, um, yeah, I'm sure that was tough at times. I mean, what kinds of conversations or changes have you made to the way that you staff the restaurant? We haven't, we haven't made any changes at all. Um, uh, the, the staff, you know, rely on us. And when there was no work and they had to stay home, they stayed home. And when the work came back, they came back to work. And we made sure we stayed in touch with them. And there was uh, always a conversation and there was support there if they needed it. And, um, and yeah, and uh, it's, it's so important that when the customers were finally allowed back in the shop, they saw the same faces that were there a few months before. And every single time we shut when they came back and then reopened, those people were still there. And that's, that's touching on the community that I think is uh, the absolute lifeblood of the place. Yeah, I guess it's that continuity is so precious, isn't it, when so much has been disrupted? Yeah, I mean, uh, it is, you know, the, 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 the security of the times is something that you, you just have to ignore because you don't know what's happening tomorrow. Um, some of the hardest times were when the law changed three or four times in a week and you were just bouncing from one place to another, not knowing what was coming next. Then being shut down was kind of a relief. And then opening back up again was crazy and then being shut again. I mean, if you actually let those things get on top of you, you would go, I I just can't deal with this anymore. So you just have to go, I don't know what's happening tomorrow. might get hit by a bus. I don't know. I'm not going to worry about that. So let's just see what the day brings. Um, And there's plenty to do in hospitality, whether you're open or closed, uh, because something will need attending to on a daily basis. So you just, you concentrate and you work on your business. Mm. Was that, I mean, did you take that mindset into the pandemic or did you really have to like steel yourself to, to think differently about things? Look, the first time round, uh, the March closed down, we, we, like I say, the law had changed so often and patrons were staying away because they were scared and our numbers kept changing. I mean, we were actually quite relieved to get closed down. Um, and then there was two weeks before JobKeeper was announced where we were absolutely in shock because we didn't know how we were going to pay anyone. And then... As after that, I mean, job keep, JobKeeper was, you know, the, the, you know, no one would have survived without it. So then we started to go like, okay, what are we going to do when we reopen? And we spent a month painting the whole place, which needed doing, making repairs, actually investing in upgrades, doing all the things to sort of say, well, we've got this time. We don't know how long it's going to be. We certainly didn't really think it would be this long. So we were sort of, <clears throat> always looking ahead to the day where we would re- re- reopen. And then, of course, we spent the last two years bouncing around between being open and closed. And it's kind of just, I think Mario and I are just in the headset that we don't have much option but to you know push through 
So let's just keep working towards what's going to happen when we reopen. Um, and now it's what's going to happen when we're back up to our full numbers. And those are the things that occupy our, our time. Gerald's isn't, uh, it's not my local, so it's not a place that I've been to as much as I would love to, but whenever I have been there, it's, um, it's such a special experience. Um, what's, how do you create that sort of sense of community for people who come to the bar for the first time? Um, we know our customers very, very well. So new customers do stand out like dog's balls. Um, they don't quite know what it's all about. It's kind of a bit strange. And the staff are onto them straight away, put them at their ease, you know, give them the chat about what it's all about, about how we pick the wines, about why the menu's on a bit of butcher's paper, um, that we go to the markets every day still. Um, we cook what's in season, what's fresh, the way we kind of fancy doing it. And then people start, you know, we, my staff are very good at getting people at their ease, suggesting things, giving them options. And most people, you know, get into it fairly quickly. Obviously, a few people don't. It's not really for them. Um, but that's okay because there's enough people that do get it for us to, you know, run a business. Mm. And this this um, late summer period, you know, very warm. What are you loving at the markets at the moment? What's finding its way onto the menus? Um, we, at this time of year, we get really nice, ripe um, Roma tomatoes. And our one of our signature dishes really is that we, uh, we cure and so we uh, blanch and peel them, then we um, cold smoke them, and we serve that with um, buffalo mozzarella, basil, good olive oil. So we do a smoked tomato caprese, bit of a, t a take on it, and it's just delicious and perfect for this for this heat wave that we seem to be having. Um, but of course, we can only do that for about three months a year because that's when the tomatoes are only that's when the tomatoes are at their best. Um, so it's a really nice seasonal thing. We always look forward to it. Um, lots of good seafood on the market at the moment. Um, although there is issues with supply, but it's uh, it's a pretty good time. Mm, yeah. And, uh, Gerald, what's it like being an author? Well, I don't know, really. I don't feel any different. <laughs> <laughs> have you got lots of people like, like picking out bits from the book and talking to you about the stories stories you've written down or perhaps some of the rules that you've written for um, people that work in hospo um it's it's really interesting because friends who have read the book um uh give me feedback and say nice things which is lovely um but what is quite interesting is nearly everyone likes a different part of the book i mean some some people you know like the humor and some people like the little tips and things like that. And other people, um, you know, you know, comment on, you know, my story about football, that's soccer, football. Um, and it's, and that's really nice because, uh, the books, you know, a little bit flippant, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, but it's, there's also a lot of grit in there. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, stories that, uh, from, you know, my family, which are, I think are very, touching and quite difficult for me to read. Um, and then, you know, 
there's the hospo stuff and then there's all the stories about food and travel and things that have um uh things that have influenced me and people that have influenced me so it's uh, i don't know i always think it's uh it's a bit of a scrapbook you know i've just written things down as i've found them and now max is able to be welding it into a book <laughs> um yeah well it's it seems like it was a really fruitful partnership certainly there's a lot of a lot of joy and a lot of depth um, in all the different stories. Um, Gerald, one of the things that we often touch upon in this podcast is is the pathways in hospitality and the fact that often um, young people don't really see it as a career of choice. And, you know, I wonder if there's any hope, you know, from you in some of the things that you've written that, that the position of hospitality could be I don't know, somewhat more appreciated in society and that people would see it as, as more of a, I don't know, rich and honourable and, and long-term pathway for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I've, this is this is one of my bugbears that I've had ever since I came to Australia. In 19, it was 30, 32 years ago tomorrow, in fact. Um, I couldn't believe that um, waiting front of house wasn't a trade. You know, coming from the UK and... Um, and I still can't believe that it's not a trade because we we expect so much more from our waiters now than we did 30 years ago. Um, I don't see waiting table as being any less of a trade than, you know, being a carpenter or a plumber um, and and uh, or a chef. So we are only going to attract young people into the industry if they feel that they can have a job for life and that, you know, one day they can buy a flat or a car and they're going to work in a dynamic and interesting place where they um, can have a career. Not, uh, unfortunately, Australia still considers it to be something that uni students do um, um, or backpackers. And, and now we've got no staff because there are no backpackers and, and there's no overseas students, and um, and then when with the government taking away the 450, what is it, 450, the you know, the 457, um, and even if they bring it back, the costs are, are, are quite great for both the individual and the employers. Um, in my opinion, in the short term, we should be um, expanding the 457 without any costs and get professionals here to train and to work um, and and at the same time, uh, federal, state, government, whoever needs to be looking at um, formalising a qualification for, for waiting staff. Um, you know, I mean, there's so much more today than there ever has been. And when you think of all the back-of-house staff, all the POS, um, point-of-sales uh computer work, um, even coming down to, you know, accountancy, um, as well as, you know, sommeliering um, and different branches uh, to the craft. Yeah. It's, there's so many skills involved. So I, I think like the 457, the new version of that is the 482 and, um, yeah, and there's a priority migration skills list that chefs are on, but restaurant managers aren't. They have been at different times in the past. It certainly gives a sense of, yeah, how those professions are valued. And, yeah, you're right, it's so expensive, like, you know, $10,000 for business and um, not much less than that for the employee. Um, it is really 
prohibitive for so many businesses and individuals. Um, and it's to me, it's so telling. You know, I've spoken to quite a few people who only realised how valuable their skills that they developed front of house were when they went looking for a job out of the industry and realized that a lot of um, employers really value those, um, you know, the hard skills and the interpersonal skills that people um, build up through that, that work in restaurants. It's a shame that people have to be on the verge of leaving to realize, you know, how skilled they are because perhaps they just don't get that sense from the society around them that, that what they're doing is valued. Absolutely. And, um, uh, I don't think the industry's helped itself with, um, you know, the, the wage uh, scandals that we had before COVID. And let's face it, the industry was in strife way back then. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of job security for young people to say, oh, career in front of house hospitality is for me. Um, we have to create some sort of, um, you know, we have to create uh, a, a reason to want to come and work in hospitality. And that means that we have to look at the wage structure. We have to look at the training structure. Now, if you get, uh, you know, my, my, my preference would be to take a 16-year-old straight out of school, do, does a three-year apprenticeship and at 19 is fully qualified and he brings his ticket along and said, there you go, there's my diploma or my trade certificate. This is what I'm worth. Then no one would have a problem. And those kids would stay in the industry for perhaps another 10, 15, 20 years and have a family and raise a family, whereas it's not an option for them today. It's just not an option. Yeah, makes it really hard. So that's my rant. I like your rant because, you know, it not only um, outlines how hard it is for those individuals but also how hard it is for businesses to um have that consistency and also I suppose to, you know, create the kind of experience that really relies on having people there that really know what they're doing and aren't just focused on carrying carrying three plates. They can really, you know, bring more to the experience, a real rounded out experience. Absolutely. And the, and the, um, the other side of this same coin is, is there's an awful lot of people my age that are finding, you know, busting the tables is just too hard. And they're, you know, if you're sort of over 50 and you're looking at getting out of the industry because it's physically too demanding, well, you've got a wonderful pool of talent there to teach the youngsters in a TAFE environment. Um, and that, that can be from all sides of hospitality. And um, because what, you, what we really need to do is teach kids the philosophy of, of hospitality, not just the nuts and bolts, as you said. Well, there you go. We're, we're back exactly at the start of the conversation with some, you know, with just the the flourish of putting a mandarin on a plate and just letting it be so much more than a piece of fruit. Yeah, I, I, I thoroughly believe that and I, I talk a lot about this in the book. I mean, food is very much about memory, experience and reigniting that memory and it's all about, that a restaurant is so much more than the sum of its parts. Um, and I think some people will say, well, I just go there because they cook a decent steak. And that's fair enough. But then there's a lot of other people there that see, you know, restaurants as part of their lifestyle. They need it. And that's why this last two years has been so harrowing for a lot of people because they actually need that connection. Yeah, I need it. <laughs> um, Gerald, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Oh, I think you've 
we've covered quite a bit. I think we have too. Um, I really appreciate uh, Gerald's Bar and I really appreciate the fact that you and Max have put this book together. Um, yeah, thank you for experiences past and those in my future, which I look forward to with relish and glee. Um, but it's been, been great to have you on the show, Gerald. Thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. I think the one thing I would like to say about the book is that you don't have to be a foodie or or fixated with wine to to read it and enjoy it because it's not just about food and wine. Yeah, definitely. It's about life. Yeah. And love. And love, definitely. Um, all right. Well, it's so lovely to have you on the show and, uh, yeah, I'll see you in the bar. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.